Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's March 1st, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes. Hey, Charlie. How are you? Good. How are you? Where the hell do we start today? Oh, I mean, that's, just that's... when you thought things might get back to normal or just settle down. I mean, here we are. I, I don't even know where, to, I guess as I said, I don't know where to start. So what is the one story today or in the last 48 hours that blows your mind? I mean, there are so many, right? I mean, it could be North Korea. It could be the resignation of our top diplomat to North Korea. It could be Russia, um, whether we're talking about the, the leftover problems from the uh, skirmish in Syria or we're talking about Vladimir Putin and this new invincible <laughs> missile that he's talking about. Um, could be Hope Hicks' resignation. I mean, it could be Donald Trump's uh, Twitter meltdown. Could be his attack on Jeff Sessions. I think for my dollar, the one with the most lasting implication, and I say that setting a Aside some of the foreign policy and national security questions, is the story that the New York Times broke about Jared Kushner and his um, meetings with uh, interests that later uh, gave him loans, offered him loans. Yeah, he sat down in the White House with with folks, uh, talked about a job with at least one of them, and then later got uh, massive loans from those folks. Uh, uh, we are in sort of the post uh, post S- uh, ethics Washington. Uh, you tweeted out uh, the swamp only swampier. So, what is the status of the swamp today? Well, I mean, I I think if you if you take a, a big step back and and you look at this from the perspective of the arguments that Donald Trump made when he was running for president, remember he was going to be the the one to end all of this, right? I mean, this that was his explicit argument. Yes, I've donated to Democrats. I've donated to Republicans. The entire system is corrupt. You need me to come in. And I alone can fix it. I can fix Washington, D.C. I can I can uh, repair what's been so badly broken in our politics and the way that our government functions. And, of course, you know, many of us were skeptical of that claim at the time. And now I think what we're seeing is that Donald Trump's Washington is in many ways swampier even than the swamp that he uh, had vowed so many times to drain. And, you know, that you can look at you can look at any of a number of examples. I mean, the, the Jared Kushner is the biggest one. And I think the one with the most long lasting implications, uh, in part because it, I think, may help give us insight as into this backstory between John Kelly and Donald Trump on, on the clearance issues. But there's also this this story that's not of tremendous import in terms of the actual dollars involved, but the thirty one thousand dollars dining set uh, ordered uh, at the behest or I guess uh, at at least for Ben Carson, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, an employee claims to have been uh, set aside because uh, of raising questions about that. I mean, you've got you've got other issues. You had a firing at uh, the Department of Interior yesterday because somebody was had made uh, conspiracy <laughs> comments. You had a similar event at HHS the week before. I mean, this is sort of the swamp, but more swampy. I, I want to read you this, uh, the, the Axios uh, email that went out the, the, this morning. After a crazy 24-hour, sources close to President Trump say he's in a bad place, mad as hell about the internal chaos and the sense that things are unraveling. Hope uh, Hope Hicks is leaving, obviously a huge blow to him. Every time he reads about Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who apparently refers to as Mr. Magoo, uh, his head explodes. Staff is trying to ride out the the, the storm. You you know, I I feel like we've been here before, you know, waving the red flags. But this does feel like there's a moment where the president is increasingly isolated, where things do have a sense of unraveling. And a lot of these scandals do seem to be 
kind of closing in. They, they, the drip, drip, drip of the stories getting closer and closer to the president and his shrinking inner circle. What, 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 what's your sense? Yeah, I mean, well, I, th- I think if you look at the, just the, the, the sheer turnover of people at the White House and not, you know, bit players at the White House, but senior people, people who were decision makers. I mean, his chief strategist, his former campaign manager, his chief of staff, his former deputy chief of staff, national security advisor, deputy national security advisor twice, communications director four times. I mean, the staff secretary just within the last month, somebody who uh, was was relied upon very heavily in the Trump White House. I mean, this is you you have the the, the people who were at, and these uh, are floating around uh, social media, you know, people who were in the initial photographs with Donald Trump uh, when he came to the White House, very few of them remain um, any longer. And, you know, I think there's a reason for that, right? I mean, this is is a, a White House that operates in constant chaos and it was funny I was I was in New Orleans giving a speech uh, yesterday and the the theme of the speech was you know if I had been here uh, you know when I thought about what I was going to say in this speech a while ago a year into the Trump administration my guess what my, my working title was now that the dust has settled right you know which now seems right hopelessly naive and and optimistic the dust is never settling I mean this is what we're going to get and I think the question both in in terms of the Trump presidency broadly, but also in terms of the 2018 election is what emerges from the chaos? You know, is it the case that Republicans who are running for office in 2018 are able to, to point to the tax reform and say, hey, look at this. This good came out of the Trump presidency mm-hmm. or they can point to, you know, real, I think, serious deregulation efforts and say, you know what? This is helping us. This is helping our constituents run their businesses on a day to day basis. This is this has done real, real good for the country and point to those things in a way that uh, helps them make an argument that they should be reelected, that they should continue to support this agenda. Does that stuff and, and the way that it feels, you know, the, the money in the pockets of, of voters uh, overwhelm or somehow, uh, you know, end up more important yeah. than this stuff? And there's you know, so I, much I, of I, this stuff. I, I am really torn about this because I was I was on a show the other day and I think we spent 20 minutes talking about uh, the the clearance uh, security clearance for uh, Jared Kushner and and in the back of my mind I'm thinking does anyone outside of New York and Washington really care about this or do the voters who are going to decide the 2018 election in in you know in Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio do they really care about this stuff? on the other hand you know this stuff does matter because of course you know who does the president listen to and this is a president who apparently will blow with the wind, whoever is whispering in his ear at the last moment. And I, I, I will tell you that uh, I would have made a ton of money if I would have put money down saying that Hope Hicks would be gone before Rex Tillerson. Um, you know, these these are the people who are the very you know, the closest to the president, a president who is completely unpredictable. Um, and, you know, what, what is your sense? I mean, I, I, under normal circumstances, somebody like a Hope Hicks leaving, would would merit a what a uh, an asterisk in the Politico morning email, but this one feels different. It 
feels like something's going on. Well, I think particularly because she's it it would have we wouldn't have expected it to to generate the kind of attention that it has because she's largely a behind the scenes operator. She doesn't she's not out there doing the briefings. She's not out there talking to the media very often. The one time Donald Trump asked her to speak on stage, she spoke a total of nine words. I mean, this is not somebody who sought the spotlight for herself, but was, I think, uh, you know, very effective inside the White House at bringing together the various parts of, you know, this sort of crazy ad hoc Trump coalition, if we call it that, inside the White House. And on the one hand, the way that the White House operates on a day-to-day basis is every man, woman for himself or herself. On the other hand, at some point, to the extent that there is any, um, you know, conductor on the communication side, it was Hope Hicks. And you, you talk to people in the White House who come out of the kind of Trumpist, nationalist, um, philosophical, philosophically driven Trumpism side of the White House, and they will say that they worked well with Hope Hicks. And then, of course, you talk to the people who are true Trump loyals, who have been there from the beginning, are loyal, personally loyal to Donald Trump. They liked Hope Hicks. There aren't many people in the White House right. who, who seem to have been universally well-liked. And Trump, I mean, Hope Hicks was one of them. She was extraordinarily close to Donald Trump. I mean, she she seemed to be able to channel him. She knew his thinking uh, maybe better than just about anybody in the White House. And I think that gave her uh, the ability to understand how he was likely to react to certain things. And while she wasn't, I mean, you know, he's Donald Trump. You're not really able to channel Donald Trump or direct him much. But if anybody could, she she was able to to help do that. And, and, and now you have this uh, this this inner circle, the the really the trusted originals getting smaller and smaller, which is why the story about Jared Kushner seems so significant, because, you know, if if Jared Kushner and Ivanka leave the White House, you really do have an isolated president. So uh, also, what do you make of uh, the this bizarre ongoing feud between the president and Jeff Sessions? It felt like it was uh, uh, entered a different phase yesterday on on two on three counts. Number one, that the you know, president is, you know, attacking him on Twitter, you know, being disgraceful. Jeff Sessions response was a pretty hard pushback right. that he was going to as long as he was in that job, he was going to continue to you know conduct himself a certain way. And then, of course, you had that uh, high profile uh, dinner. Um, where Jeff Sessions is with the top, uh, you know, his, his top aides in the Justice Department. Uh, what, 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 what do you make of the President of the United States in open, nasty warfare with his Attorney General? Is he hoping that Jeff Sessions quits? Yeah, I think he's hoped that Jeff Sessions quits literally since the day that Jeff Sessions recused himself on the Russia investigation. And we've seen this. I mean, we've seen these flare ups before you had the president attacking Jeff Sessions on Twitter before Jeff Sessions reportedly offering his resignation. Uh, a lot of this back and forth. And in in, in the past, you, you've had... Um, you know, it's almost like Jeff Sessions felt sorry for himself. Like, oh, I don't understand why the president's treating me. I'm very loyal. I'm, I'm, you know, philosophically a nationalist. I'm with the president on these things. I was one of his early supporters. I think that was the sense of Sessions and his supporters. And this time he's, he's, I think, very strikingly taken a, a different posture. He, he did, as you say, offer a statement response to the president, you know, saying, 
hey, I'm, I am here to, to operate fairly and to carry out the duties of the responsibilities of the attorney general uh, without fear or favor. And that's what I intend to do. It's a reassuring thing to hear from Jeff Sessions, to be honest. I mean, the president of the United States is not at all shy that he, uh, about the fact that he would like Jeff Sessions to launch these investigations of the Obama administration, the the Clinton administration. He wants them run in a particular way. I think the president wants them run with a particular outcome in mind. That is politicized law enforcement. That's what that looks like. And it's very important, I think, that Jeff Sessions stood up and said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. You can make these calls, Mr. President. That's not my job. I'm not your personal lawyer. I'm not supposed to have personal loyalty to you on these matters of, of jurisprudence, and I'm not going to. And if nothing else, it was an important statement that there is some independence uh, there and that and that Sessions isn't going to be bullied by a president who's um, pushing him in public and, and no doubt prodding him in private. OK, now this is obviously the low hanging fruit, which we have to talk about today, uh, that uh, the, uh, the the televised conference about gun control yesterday in which uh, the president appeared to um, throw the NRA under the bus, uh, em- embrace every proposal that the Democrats had. Uh, Diane Feinstein was giddy. And then you had this genuinely extraordinary exchange about taking away guns. And this is this is a discussion of of the issue of the gun violence um, restraining orders, which has been discussed in conservative circles, you know, allowing law enforcement to be able to come in and go to a judge and say someone's gun should be removed. Um, I want to play this uh, the the uh, the the soundbite from yesterday's meeting. It takes so long to go to court to get the due process procedures. Uh, I like taking the guns early, like in this crazy man's case that just took place in Florida. He had a lot of firearms. They saw everything. To go to court would have taken a long time. So you could do exactly what you're saying, but take the guns first, go through due process second. Okay, Steve Hayes, how many years have we heard Republicans in the NRA say that Democrats, people like uh, Barack Obama, were going to grab your guns? And here you had yesterday the president of the United States talking about taking away people's guns explicitly without due process. He went out of his way to say he wasn't afraid of the NRA. Um, it was it was an amazing moment um, for, 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 for Donald Trump. And, and, you know, I had a couple of reactions, including, I, I wonder whether the folks from the NRA are rethinking their cult of personality, whatever the president says, uh, approach to this. <laughs> um, but is, 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 th- is this going to have any legs or is this going to be simply a replay of the immigration meeting in which he was talking about an act of love? And then was it about 48 hours later he was talking about the need to stop uh, bringing people in from shithole countries? Right. I, I suspect that we're going to end up uh, with the latter, where the White House walks this back or they, they work hard to explain what the president intended to say. And as you point out, I think, in fairness to the president, this was in context of this idea that David French of National Review has has pushed. I mean, it's, an, it's certainly an, an idea worth taking seriously. It's an idea worth discussing. But the way that the president talked about it I think exposed hypocrisy on all sides. I mean, it's not just, you know, the right who had invested so heavily in Donald Trump and everything he said, sort of do whatever you want, Mr. President. It's also the left who have have raised alarms about Trump's authoritarianism. And the second he says something that they like, they say, well, okay, he might be our kind of authoritarian. This is great. We love this new president. Uh, Pushing, you know, confiscating guns without due process. Um, Look, 
this is who Donald Trump is, right? He changes his mind from moment to moment. In the primaries, uh, he sounded like somebody who was very, um, very well aligned with the policies of the NRA. That was a striking contrast from the kinds of things that Donald Trump has said in the past. And the question I think that that everybody had coming into his presidency was where would he end up? Not just on guns, but on a wide variety of issues where he campaigned one way and he, um, you know, everything he had said in his his private life before that had pointed in a different direction. And we've gotten some answers on these things. It turns out he's he was willing to govern as a conservative on judges. Uh, he was more for cutting taxes, uh, including taxes for the wealthy, than he would have than we might have thought uh, several years ago. There are ways in which that that's made conservatives happy. This is one of the potential downsides. Yeah, if, but this is this lives. is the first time that he has really gone after his own base. He's been very, very careful not to allow too much daylight between himself and his base. And, and the NRA really has established itself as kind of the beating heart of that uh, of that of that Trumpist base. And it's hard to imagine that the president could have distanced himself from the NRA more. I mean, he's talking about, you know, a, a open to uh, the right. assault weapons ban, talking about taking away guns without uh, due process, uh, you know, uh, endorsing universal background checks, uh, raising the age for the purchase of of firearms. You went down the list and, you know, basically, you know, every single thing that Wayne LaPierre would have gone to the mat on, uh, the president basically pushed him aside. I just I just wonder, um, you know, what the shelf life of that's going to be, especially when he realizes that that, in fact, uh, you know, the NRA is just simply not going to roll over for him because he's Donald Trump. Correct. Probably shelf life is pretty short on that. There's actually a very good article, uh, perhaps we can link to it, um, that Fred Barnes wrote back in March of 2017, talking about how really the NRA, more than anybody else, is responsible for putting Donald Trump in the Oval Office. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke with a, uh, somebody who's done some work for the NRA over the years, and, and they said that, that 86% of NRA voters supported Donald Trump in 2016. There was a of course, you know, uh, ad campaigns about about Donald Trump and about the the threat that Hillary um, that Hillary Clinton would have uh, presented to gun owners had she been elected president. And I, I think it's it's um, you know we're likely to see the White House walk this back or, or provide more context or try to explain that the president didn't really mean what the president's plain words actually conveyed. I thought it was interesting, and uh, you, you have a piece up at uh, the Weekly Standard, Republicans gobsmacked by Trump's gun control comments, which includes the comments from uh, Ben Sass from Nebraska, who uh, was out with a statement very, very quickly on this. We're not ditching any constitutional protections simply because the last person the president talked to today doesn't like them. Uh, Sass's comments um, were, were very, very strongly worded. There were a lot of other Republicans that kind of, you know, were looking at their shoes and shuffling, but, but Sass uh, really drew the line here. This was, this was, this was one of the sharpest uh, breaks between uh, Sass and Trump that I've seen, you know, in, in, in some time. Yeah, and and you're right that many other Republicans, you know, they tried to to change the subject or or um, explain them away. Uh, our Haley Bird, who reported that story that that you're describing, talked to Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, who said, "I know what his words said, but I don't think in his heart of hearts that's really what he meant." And he's no legal scholar. And she talked to to John Thune, who's uh, in Republican leadership. And rather than answer her question directly, Thune kind of paused and then said, um, well, you know, I don't think there's going to be a lot of support for that on Capitol Hill. (laughs) 
you know, it's it's easy to to try to ex- excuse or explain these comments away or to to choose to talk about process instead. But imagine if Barack Obama had said this. I mean, or or if Hillary Clinton had said this. This is not I mean, hard, by be, the way. I mean, know. this is not hard to realize what if if those words had come out of Barack Obama's mouth, it would have been spontaneous combustion right. throughout the right. Right. No, that's exactly right, and that's what makes this rather muted. Um, response from many Republicans uh, so interesting. And I think, you know, tells us something about uh, the, the sway that Donald Trump, Trump has uh, over Republicans on Capitol Hill. But, but also how they've learned not to take him terribly seriously when he says things like this. Hey, I want to give a shout out to uh, one of our sponsors, uh, Quip. When it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. And Quip knows that. They've combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. And it really is extraordinary. It's the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of the bulkier traditional electric toothbrushes. And guiding pulses alert you when to switch sides, making brushing uh, just the right amount uh, much, 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 much easier. Now, most toothbrushes don't get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year. But Quip, uh, Quip did, and you can find out for yourself why. So Quip starts at just $25, and if you go right now to getquip.com slash standard right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. Okay, Steve Hayes, um, because conservatives haven't taken uh, enough shots from this particular administration, uh, today is trade war day with the president announcing uh, significant new tariffs on steel and aluminum. Um, Your reaction? Well, I mean, it's interesting, Charlie, just as as we're talking here, as we're recording here uh, a little before noon on Thursday, there is a new report that this announcement that had been first reported last night, been discussed all morning, is now not going to take place as originally planned. And and I think it what this this does is it gives us in some window into the White House thinking on this. And it was very interesting when the story broke last night. I happened to be flying back from my trip to New Orleans and was online, you know, looking at Twitter, reading a bunch of news websites. And, you know, the, I think the Washington Post broke the story and said the president is, is prepared to, to give this, these remarks. He's going to make this announcement. And uh, White House reporters, whose job it is to know what's happening in the White House at virtually all times, were flummoxed by this. What? Wait, what? There's a, a major announcement on trade and tariffs. Uh, we didn't have any heads up on that. So they, of course, reached out to their sources. None of their sources knew that the president was going to make this announcement. And in that sense, it it, it recalls, you know, the, the fight over recertifying the Iran deal back in October of 2017, when the, the we had learned here at the Weekly Standard that Trump was going to recertify the Iran deal, but he wasn't comfortable with it. So all weekend and then on Monday uh, of the week that they were supposed to announce uh, this recertification, they went back and forth. And at one point they reversed the decision and scrambled the entire White House communications staff to write talking points announcing that the president was going to be decertifying the Iran deal rather than recertifying the Iran deal. I mean, it was chaos. This is not, re- this is not reassuring, is it? This is this is what uh, this is what we've come to expect. And, and I think reading the, the latest uh, stories as they came over, 
uh, several senior administration officials who disagree with the president on this, most notably Gary Cohn and Rex Tillerson, uh, prevailed upon the president to at least postpone this new announcement of what would in effect be a, a trade war. You know, it it is interesting. I was watching some of the same uh, back and forth on Twitter, and um, uh, one of the reporters was saying that there was a lot of back and forth going on in the White House over this policy. And Maggie Haberman from The New York Times said there's no back and forth. It's just complete chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. No, nobody even knows what, where the paperwork is on all of this. And here you have, uh, you know, arguably one of these policies that would affect people in the real world in a fundamental way. And apparently they're making it up on the fly. Actually, that puts it somewhat mildly, doesn't it? It does. And, and again, we've seen we've seen this before. I mean, whether it's the president's comments on, on guns or, or the ones on immigration that you mentioned before, he often you have a White House staff. I mean, their job is to prepare these policies, prepare these rollouts, provide the president the background. He needs the support he needs to, to push a policy to get it adopted. And, and they will spend days, sometimes weeks preparing a policy to, to head in a, in a particular direction, only to have it sort of cut out from under them. Um, with a presidential tweet or a comment or or something like this. And I think, look, yesterday was a difficult day at the White House. I mean, you had one of the president's longtime uh, closest advisors in Hope Hicks announced that she was leaving the president. There were reports that there was some tension there, that he was very frustrated with comments that she had made, that she sometimes had to tell white lies on the president's behalf when she had testified uh, before uh, the House Intelligence Committee um, on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And you also had this this major story breaking about Jared Kushner, the details of which are are truly jaw-dropping. And you can see that that this would have perhaps unnerved the president as he was sitting in the White House taking this all in and, um, you know, might have caused him. And I'm speculating here. I want to be clear that I'm not basing this on Mm -hmm. any specific reporting that I have, but might have caused this president to say, you know what, we were going to make this announcement anyway. Let's push this up. Let's try to reprogram what's happening on cable news tomorrow. I'm going to I'm going to be the programming director of cable news and we're going to be talking about tariffs instead of Jared and instead of hope. Yeah, that didn't work out. Now, the, the, the Jared story, going back to the uh, the jaw-dropping story of, of the day, the, the fact that, uh, you know, had there not been a Russia scandal, I, I think that these uh, these conflicts of interest, uh, the, uh, the the failure to divest themselves of their, uh, their investments would have been one of the bigger issues in the background of this administration. But now you really get the sense, or at least I get the sense, uh, that the Mueller investigation is crossing what uh, Donald Trump once said was the red line and really looking very closely at all of these uh, these financial transactions and whether or not uh, there's a Russian connection. I mean, I the, the, the Jared story is extraordinary because it co- comes, you know, with you know one shoe after another. The Washington Post story showing that uh, we're reporting that that foreign governments had actually talked about how they could perhaps leverage and manipulate Jared Kushner because of his financial situation. And then you find out this uh, the story about the the loans that were uh, that were being given Um this this uh, this this messiness. I, I don't I don't know how the the White House cleans this up, uh, you know, short of Ivanka and Jared moving back to New York. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if if there were easy explanations for uh, what we read today, I suspect that we would have already heard them. And this, this this has been building for a while. I've talked to to sources familiar with the Mueller investigation who have said that the that the questioning from Mueller interrogators has in many 
instances focused on Jared Kushner and his financial ties and the, the, the kinds of conversations that he was having before the election, the kinds of conversations that he was having during the administration, and the kinds of conversations that continued into the early days of the Trump presidency. And, you know, the, the way that, that uh, one person I talked to about this uh, walked me through it was that, you know, Jared didn't think that Donald Trump was going to win any more than most of the rest of us didn't think that Donald Trump was going to win, including Donald Trump, as he as he said in a speech after the election in West Dallas, Wisconsin. Um, so Jared is having these these conversations before the election, thinking about ways that he can can leverage his position in the campaign with his business post election and then Donald Trump wins. So he's in the middle of all of these conversations with with business interests, with governments uh, around the world. And the conversations continue in a way that is just not proper uh, for somebody who is serving in a transition at that point and then serving in the government. Now, we have a lot more to learn about this, but I think, you know, going back to, to the earlier comment that you made, um, that, that it's sometimes hard for um, Americans who are busy living their lives and don't, uh, you know, aren't paid to obsess about this stuff in, in the way that we are, um, they, they don't, the security clearance fight, you know, how does that matter one way or the other? I think you're right that that probably was difficult to translate. This is very different, I think. Now what you've had with this New York Times story and presumably a bunch of follow-up reporting uh, today in the coming days is details that people can easily understand. You know, people people deal with offers like this, not of this scale, of course, um, you know, every day as they run their own businesses. And, uh, you know, they... they if you're if you're doing favors or suggesting favors to somebody who's in a position to help you later, you can't do that. Um, you know, depending on the the circumstances, but it's certainly something that doesn't look good in uh, in government service, and particularly not in government service if you uh, were part of a campaign that ran to drain the swamp. And it, it, it seems increasingly obvious that Robert Mueller is going to find everything out. That he's going to, he knows a lot more than we think he knows. He's going after the money. He's tracking all of this, and that you know whatever the the Trump folks thought was their private business is going to be part of this investigation. Now, one last question because we're running out of time here. But I get the sense, and excuse me, I'm kind of losing track of time here because everything you know was in dog years in in the, in the Trump era. But about a month ago, it seemed that there was this full cry uh, attempt on the part of uh, Trump and his loyalists in, in Congress to discredit the Mueller investigation. And there was some real speculation. You know, is he, is he going to fire Robert Mueller? Uh, you had, you know, the Nunes memo that, that, that came out. Since the indictment of those 13 Russians, I just get the sense that that has died down, that there is a, that we're in a different period, that the Mueller investigation, you know, appears to be moving ahead and, you know, at, at, at flank speed. And that the the attempt to to uh, attack him and undermine him just seems more muted. Do you get that sense? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's going to be there. But the the thing to remember about the the indictment of the the thirteen Russians um, was. I don't I don't think the significance of those indictments on their own, as you and I discussed right after they came out, I didn't think that was a big a big deal. I mean, to me, we were talking about not a lot of money. There wasn't much uh, evidence provided that shows that they had vast influence. I mean, that felt like sort of a nothing burger, except for one fact. Remember, in that indictment, uh, Mueller used the word um, unwitting to describe mm -hmm. the efforts of the Russians to work with the 
Trump uh, campaign at the time. And in many cases, you had supporters and defenders of Donald Trump and his campaign and later administration say, aha, Bob Mueller is saying that we didn't collude with the Russians. This is everything we've been saying for more than a year. Look, they they had good reason to say that. I mean, I think that is that was the sort of short term read of what Mueller was done. The effect of that argument, however, was to enhance the credibility of Bob Mueller and his investigation <laughs> by saying, look, even Bob Mueller is saying this. And and if you're citing Bob Mueller and his investigators and you're saying, in effect, that they're making your argument for you, it's pretty hard to later say, oh, these people are not credible at all. I mean, nobody should believe a word they say. So I think that may be not because of the substance of the, the Russian indictment itself, but because of the political discussion that uh, followed the, those indictments uh, might have changed the way that Trump world was approaching this. All right, Steve. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. In fact, I'm going to have a one-on-one discussion with Bill Crystal on the Friday edition of the Daily Standard podcast. <laughs>